We are not defined by the shape of our eyes or the color of our skin. We are defined by who we are, what we believe in, what we dream about, and what we will achieve in the future. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals. We are the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers. My next guest is Lisa Fong, Queen's Counsel. She practices in the area of administrative, Aboriginal, and environmental litigation and advising governmental and regulatory bodies. She often practices in professional regulatory areas, including um, quality assurance, registration, inquiry, discipline, reviews, and appeals. She also has uh, a great practice assisting Indigenous governments asserting their Aboriginal rights and title, especially in terms of energy projects and environmental uh, sensitive um, uh, litigation. I first met Lisa when I was a very young lawyer, just starting out, and she was starting out as well, and we both found ourselves acting for teachers and defending them before the old College of Teachers, and I've always been super impressed with her tenacity, her intelligence, um, and just um, uh, just how, uh, how much energy she has, and that will absolutely come through, as you'll hear in this podcast. She also is a leader in um, opening up a boutique. She has her own boutique, Ing Aris Fong, um, one of the few uh, kind of public litigation boutiques and certainly one that is led by an Asian lawyer. So without ado, I welcome Lisa Fong. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Chilwin. How are you? I'm good. It's Chinese New Year today. It is. So, Gong Hei Fat Choi. Hope you get rich. Well, Hope you get really rich. <laughs> it's highly unlikely given what I do for a living. But yeah, <laughs> rich in spirit. So thanks for that. So um, let, let's get right into it. I, as, as my introduction mentioned, uh, one of the reasons why I really wanted to uh, talk to you in this podcast series because you do public law. You're senior, senior counsel. And again, let's remind our listeners, I'm going to make your, your, your cheeks blush. You have your Queen's Council, um, uh, but you do public law. So unlike the previous three guests who do largely commercial, very high-end commercial litigation, you do very high-end public law. Um, you and I last d uh, worked with each other on a public law case involving a health regulatory authority, uh, several of them actually. Yeah. And um, and you're also uh, counsel in a number of in indigenous rights cases, uh, environmental use cases. So can you, I mean, there's, there seems to be this social pressure on Asian lawyers, rightly or wrongly, to kind of chase the money and to work in commercial law, let alone commercial litigation. If, if I'm right, and if you think that that, that pressure exists, um, what made you go into public interest litigation and, and to achieve the success that you have? Oh, that's a really important question because um, as a, uh, so I've been practicing for about 22 years now. So I'm of that generation. My parents came to Canada in the mid 1960s and um, I was born in Canada afterwards. There just weren't very many. When I went to law school, I was one of three Chinese people in my class. I went to Queens. So there just weren't a lot of Asian people. And there was this expectation when I was 
going to my articling interviews. And in those days, it was articling was falling out of the trees. Like I had like 40 interviews in Vancouver and everybody wanted a solicitor. Everyone expected, because I was Chinese, that somehow I'd be great about great on numbers and I would be a solicitor. So I had all these interviews and I, I probably had only three or four interviews where I could get a broader experience on litigation. So I chose one of those places and I article that Edwards Kenny and Bray that had a full service, found out immediately, I think day two, I was not going to be a solicitor. They were very nice about it. That was really clear. That was not going to happen to me. Okay. So <laughs> drafting a resolution, I think I took eight hours. I couldn't figure out what they were talking about. Didn't understand this whole business about boards and companies. Like, what are those? I just didn't come from that background. Sure. Yeah. So, um, but I fit in well on the litigation scale, but the litigation they did was mostly commercial and complex. And when I left them, I went to a complex commercial litigation um, boutique firm. Um, then Roberts and Griffin, so Madam Justice Griffin and Daryl Roberts. And they did large-scale shareholders litigation, the, the stuff that Kevin does, Kevin Liu that you interviewed, and that's when I met Kevin too. Um, shortly, I think after that, that was, that was fun, you know, and you learn a lot. I think it's a really important experience. Um, you know, these, these issues continue to arise about discrimination. At that time, Chinatown was still, downtown Chinatown here in Vancouver was still uh, quite active. Yes. There was quite a bit of consternation about the unfairness of the taxation of the Chinatown businesses. Um, Success was very active with its own pro bono clinic. Um, I volunteered for the clinic. Let, let me just pause here for, for our listeners. So success, um, is it fair to say, is probably the largest uh, at the time, anyways, predominantly Chinese-speaking, Cantonese-Mandarin-speaking uh, organization serving immigrants and refugees. Um, so I just want to make sure I set that stage so that when, when you say set up a legal clinic, people understand. Is that is that fair to say, Lisa? Yes. Absolutely. And okay. so through that experience, I had a lot more exposure to the legal issues that Chinese people were facing on an everyday level. So not at that time, we didn't have the influx of very uh, wealthy Chinese people from Hong Kong and the Chinese mainland. So you don't ha you didn't have the Chinese business litigation as much that time. You had the solicitor's work because there was a lot of construction, a lot of building, but you didn't have the litigation piece that would follow them in the immigration and once the construction work became more so prevalent. And um, that just really tugged at who I was. You know, growing up in Vancouver and my parents coming when they were full adults and my sister was already 10, you know, I'd witnessed the discrimination that they suffered as they tried to find their place in Canada. Um, you know, we grew up in Vancouver East Side, and so there's the the demographic that we weren't we weren't wealthy people, and um, my parents worked very hard to make sure their children had a decent education and we had a house that we could live in, and so you see these things, and it just became a very easy place for me to go in my practice to do public interest type work. And at some point when I, during my junior years, um, my firm was going through various transitions and uh, my partner, who is another Chinese lawyer, 
And I don't really think there are tons of them because honestly, I think I can count on one hand all the Chinese senior lawyers I know, yeah. including Chilwin <laughs> and Michael, my partner in life and yeah. in my practice. Yeah. Um, Michael was also doing commercial litigation and we had just decided that, well, we'd want to try something else. And we went out on our own um, and we felt that was a better fit for us. And I just naturally drew in more public interest cases. About 10 years into my practice, um, my first First Nations case came to us. My friend came and said, we need a litigator for a public inquiry. That was the Fraser River Sockeye Salmon Cohen Commission. And that's when I met the Heltzik First Nation. And I know this sounds awfully shameful, but you know, that was the first time I met a First Nation person. I had not known any Indigenous people huh. as I was growing up in Vancouver. Right. And so um, that was like a house on fire moment. Once I understood and started to intake the what had happened to them in Canada historically and um, their fight for title and rights um, and the, what, the gaps you see in pieces of environmental legislation, in human rights legislation, um, in the charter, it's addictive. You, you, you can't go back. It's what you do. It feeds the soul. It feeds the heart. The law is fascinating and will fill your mind. And so that became a heavy part of my practice. My other part of my practice is professional regulation where I met Chilwin. And Chilwin, when you asked me yeah. um, to do this, I was thinking, geez, last year, how many Chinese lawyers did I deal with? And you know, you were the only one. We did uh, that court of appeal case yeah. and I don't encounter Chinese lawyers, like really at all. Yeah. It was you and I. Um, but, you know, that work also came to us through um, a, a, a man who was Muslim that felt he wasn't being culturally appropriately represented by his union. He marched uh -huh. in our office. He found us and he said, yeah. you're you're at least a person of color. You might understand what I'm talking about. Right, yep. And that's when we started our regulatory practice. We started on the defense side, defending teachers. Yeah. And then eventually the other side, the regulator, started hiring us. And, um, you know, no one's ever said it, but I think it's helpful that I have a cultural background where I can recognize that different cultures may understand the world slightly differently, participate differently, um, say things differently, tell stories that are somewhat different. And it's important to be able to translate that when you're before an adjudicator that doesn't have that background. Um, as a, as an aside, Lisa, that's that's actually how you and I met. Was doing teacher defense work way back when, like before, way when the when when there actually was a sort of an independent college and and uh, an independent uh, representation of, of teachers before teachers regulation. Um, so it's it's fascinating to watch, just over the last say fifteen years, just um, how things have not changed. Because mm -hmm. I think you and Kevin were the only ones, kind of Chinese lawyers that, or Asian lawyers, really, that were practicing in kind of, um, kind of non-personal injury, non-retail litigation, and it's still the case. And it's 15 years later. I know. What's going on, Lisa? Yeah, well, um, I, I totally agree. I think there is a dearth of Asian lawyers, Chinese lawyers. 
Um, and I do see more young Asian lawyers uh, in the one to five year range. So I feel heartened by that. But I do want to know why have why why have our colleagues left or why have they never come? I think that's an important question because we see that I think reflected also on the bench, which is a problem. Let's put, let's put a pin in that because I do want to turn back to the bench piece. Um, want to canvas your views on that? But um, one of the things I do want to try to address, which is sort of how this podcast started because we're speaking specifically with litigators so what you've said asian lawyers so um as the kind of the series introduction said uh i related the story about i was feeling bored one day and i went onto the websites of some of the major firms in canada the, the national ones and you filter for vancouver filter partner filter litigation and i think miranda's name is the only one that comes up Right, across all the firms that does litigation. But on the solicitor side, you know, lead of the Asia Pacific practice group, we act for China. There's lots of lawyers on the business side, but you go on the litigation side and it's, as I said, it's like maybe one or two names pop up at the major kind of downtown firms and not just the major firms, but the even the boutiques. Um, again, I'm not going to name names here, but, but does, you and I know who they are, and mm-hmm. we, we can filter for who the big lawyers are at those boutiques. And I don't think I rec- again, except for Kevin, I don't recognize any Asian names. Am I fair when I say that? I I think I think you are. Okay, subject to, and it's not boutique, but Lara Z over at Harper Gray, right? Very senior, yes, female Asian Chinese lawyer, yes. That's right. But really, she, I would say she and you are the only people I encounter, um, Chinese lawyers and, and litigators. Okay, I don't deal with a lot of solicitors because I don't have a solicitor's practice. Yeah. Um, but your, your question about litigators is, is a really interesting question. I've always wanted to understand that myself because you're right. There are a lot more Chinese solicitors than there are Chinese litigators. And I've always suspected it had something to do... Uh, I was telling you about when I when I was going through my article interviews that there was this understanding that you know I could possibly make a good solicitor and fitness solicitors department, yeah. which you know I, is clearly untrue of me. Okay, so I wonder if people got filtered out there. I think the other thing that's kind of unique about uh, litigation is. Um, you know, it wasn't until into the 1950s that Chinese people could even be lawyers. So we don't have that history of our parents or our grandparents being, you know, judges or litigators. And a lot of our colleagues who, for example, go to the bench, they do have that history. And so it's a norm in their family, but certainly not a norm for our families. Um, my parents were appalled. They thought it was the worst thing I could possibly do was go to law school. <laughs> they were like, why didn't you go to med school? What's wrong with you? Who wants to go to law school? And you're a woman on top of that. You know, how are you going to have children? And Absolutely. You can imagine it yep. all from yep. Chinese parents, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, 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 you are not the only guest that has related that and then you talk about litigation and and the gloves come off from the parents like why would you want to what so what's going on there like I think if you medicine, were to accept Lisa 
Yeah, sorry. Par- parents understand medicine. Medicine's about science. It's not confrontational. It's helping society. But, you know, from my parents' point of view, it just made no sense. I was going to go into a, um, well, it, into a court where nobody else looked like me and make arguments. And, and I remember my mother saying, who's going to believe you? Why would you want to do this with your life? But you also have to remember, my parents came from that generation where they came as immigrants. And their message growing up to us was, you have to fit in. This is not your country. You're going to do what they do. These are their rules. So remember that. And we're going to give you everything you can to play by their rules. Right? And then outside of your work or your the courthouse, you can be Chinese at home. Like that was how they envision being Chinese in Canadian society. I think it's so different now with, you know, with kids, like your kids, for example, they, they don't draw those distinctions. They don't feel the barriers and the boundaries in the same way as I think our generation does. So, so let's walk that forward a, a couple of, uh, a couple of years. That piece, do you think, so that, that speaks to barriers to, Asians entering the lawyering profession generally, do you sense that there's an additional barrier or some other issue that that even restricts that intake, if we could say that, into the barrister profession, even more so than lawyering generally? Well, I think for, I think for coming out of my parents' generation, it was the language, the ability to manipulate language. Um, I was different because I was born here, so I was fully educated in Canada and Vancouver. Um, But my parents and my sister have always spoken Chinese with an accent. And, you know, they're they're quite cognizant of that. That becomes less important now that we have so many Asian people and so many different people of diversity in Vancouver. you know, I remember my 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 nephew who's Chinese and and part German, and him coming back from school and picking up a Chinese accent because he just thought that was the way people spoke. You know, so he came home with one one day. You know, but 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 I think for litigators, um, you know, language is such an important skill, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was another conceptual barrier. And certainly at the time that we were, you know, practicing as junior lawyers you know, 20 years ago, it was not uncommon. I don't know your experience, but it was still not uncommon to hear comments like, oh, you don't have an accent. Where are you from? Oh, um, I get that all the time still. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or you're really, you're a lawyer. And I remember, you know, being towed off to court with Daryl carrying all the bags and all the stuff as juniors do and people assuming I was his legal assistant, you know, and that would just happen to me all the time. Um, And I always wondered like, was that, you know, it's because I'm Chinese. It's because I'm a woman. Uh, Part of it was my language because I spoke without an accent and people wanted to know why that was the case because it was so unusual at that time. You know, I haven't been asked that, for quite a while, but I think I think people are afraid of saying that to me now. <laughs> okay, like I'm I'm too old now. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! Are we there yeah. yet? That that yeah. we can say that. Um, well, <laughs> okay, now, now 
let me maybe use that as a jumping point what you just said to talk to to get circle back to a point that I said that we wanted to put a pin in it about the bench and and it was it was a topic that you and I talked about before we hit the record button on this podcast um, of the lack of diversity there is on the bench and I think that's factually true anyone that goes on the BCSC uh, B Supreme Court website over the annual reports just downloads just even goes by the really rough measure of last names we'll see a complete absence of Asian names um, so let's let's just accept that fact is true like like climate change right mm -hmm. so so let's talk about causes let's talk about mitigation and and, and remediation what what's your thoughts there Where, why is it happening uh, I'd really like to know why that's happening. I mean, as, as we know, to get to the bench is a two-way street. You need applicants, and then they need to be accepted. Um, I have, you know, heard that there aren't a lot of Chinese applicants or Asian applicants. I don't know if that's true because there's no disclosure of uh, data of applicants. And if that is so, I think it would be good if there's an examination as to why that's the case. Because my, my biggest fear is that there's a cultural reason for it, that there's a sense that senior lawyers feel they wouldn't fit in that environment. Because as we all know, especially as litigators, we, we can see that there's a lack of color on the bench. I mean, in terms of Chinese people right now, we don't have any Chinese judges at the Supreme Court. We don't have any color judges at all on our Court of Appeal or at the Supreme Court of Canada. So we are very used to entering an environment where everybody is not of color and everybody is white. And Less so maybe now at the Supreme Court bench, but very much so five years ago, I think less so now, but also that they were all big firm. These are all big firm lawyers that became judges, you know, and, and of a certain demographic too. So it's that intersection. I think we need to explore it. I mean, if we're really serious about diversity on the bench, and I think we have to be, I don't know how the law can say it will serve um, a diverse population, especially one as diverse as what we have, without having diversity on our bench. I think that's a real disservice. Law is a social construction, is embedded so much cultural components in it. We really need to know that when someone comes forward to a court and tells their story, that our adjudicators are actually in a position to understand their stories and are working functionally in um, you know, legal parameters that allow for those cultural differences. And we're not going to get that without diversity on the bench. I actually agree with you, but for the sake of teasing this idea out more, I'm going to I'm going to push back a little bit on this piece. Um, is it, you know, Justice McLaughlin, Chief, former Chief Justice McLaughlin, in, in some of her earlier books and biographies, have talked about the importance of imagination. About part of her success or her perceived success as a judge was the ability to step into the shoes of the person in front of me and truly understanding their experience. And and we've talked about, and, and when I say we, I mean the royal we, but you, you'll hear thinkers across political spectrums, across culture and, and racial divides that talk about the need 
for imagination and empathy to understand the other, right? Capital O. If there's some truth to that, I'm not saying it's completely true, I'm not saying it's the universal truth, but if there is some truth to that, is racial, ethnic representation necessary on the bench? Should we accept as empirical fact that only a person who is Chinese can understand a uniquely Chinese cultural or personal context or a personal historical context? Uh, alternatively, I'm not, uh, now, again, I preface this by saying, you know, Lisa, I, I am, I actually agree with you, but I, I do want to, this is the common argument that we get back, mm -hmm. right? Um, of why diversity targets are not appropriate. So that's the common, um, maybe straw man argument, but it's a powerful one because I, I encountered that pushback quite a bit when I raised the topics that you've raised. I, I could see though that another source of importance for diversity of the bench isn't necessarily that people are incapable of understanding an Asian person's experience or, or a, 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 a gender diverse person's experience or an Aboriginal person's experience, but that the, the legitimacy of the institution itself is at stake, that we need diversity in the bench because it needs as a symbol to reflect society. Um, on your last Which, statement, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, on your first statement about is it necessary, I think it's absolutely true that non, uh, I would say non-people of color can definitely understand the experience of people in color, but they cannot replace people of color. They cannot, they do not, you can step into the shoes, but you can't really you weren't grown in those shoes. And so there's some, I would say some, some of the deeper things and some of the daily encounters which make our experiences um, that can't really be replicated. But of course, there's communication, there's education, there is stepping back and there's breadth of experience. Absolutely, I, I absolutely agree with you. But I still think we need that diversity on the bench to truly have that understanding of those different legal stories and also to bring them to bear into creating our laws. Um, and I think your point about representation and having that legitimacy from an external perspective looking in, I think that's really I think that's really important because to generations, I think of uh, people of color, places like the courts ha have not have been this strange, outside place because it doesn't engage with people of color. And, and I challenge you, I know exactly how many judges of color I have appeared before in my 22 years of practice. And that's three. <laughs> Madam, Madam Justice Liu, my first year of practice, I was blown away. My boss took me to a hearing and I was juniorng and she was the judge. That was the only hearing I ever had with her. And then, was it la wasn't last year, the year before, I had Mr. Justice Bazran and I had Madam Justice Sharma. And that's it. Yes. You know, and I notice it. Yes. Oh, I've been in front of Madam Justice Sharma as well once. Um, I know you have because that's why <laughs> you and I were together <laughs> very recently. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, 
but uh, but absolutely, um, yeah. There's a real dearth there. So narrow to something that's more personal to you. And I'm wondering again with much felicitations, congratulations, even though it's, it's, it's older news now, uh, your appointment as Queen's Council. And I'm sh we're all very, as friends of yours, we're all very proud and happy for you. But I am wondering whether there's any unique feelings or experience you have as an Asian lawyer receiving a Queen's Council. Um, or, or is it just not relevant? And that's okay too. Well, I think there are complicated feelings about the Queen's Council. Um, it's to be celebrated because, you know, I feel very honored that I was appointed. And there are lots of people, very deserving lawyers who applied. And there are lots of so many deserving lawyers who don't apply, mm. you know, and, and get appointed. Um, but at the same time, it's, it, it created an interesting reaction amongst people. And some people just, it, it, you know, and it is, it's that intersectionality of being Chinese and being a woman, maybe practicing public law as well. Um, but some people said to me, oh, isn't it great to have an NTP government, Lisa? <laughs> oh, that's ugly. I, I, that's I so ugly. And yet that's not the way they meant it. But there's still that ingrained belief that, you know, people of color are just not as good. Like, it sounds terrible to say that. But there's still that That's there. That's not right. That's not right. Um, well, I'm sorry that you've had that. That's ugly. Okay. Well, what does your QC appointment, do you think, might say to younger lawyers? Again, many of the listeners of the Faculty Podcast. So you're looking, you're, you've got a, a young lawyer, one to five year call in a litigation department. What does being a QC mean to you? And what does it mean for those people? Well, I hope it means for them that and they don't see just the QC they see the fact that I run my own small firm we do the work we do which I think is you know really satisfying and important to society and that we're capable of doing it the fact that I'm a woman on top of it all um, I hope they see that to mean that they can achieve what they want and that those barriers aren't there and again because uh, again, very drawn to the fact that you do public law. Any any messages of hope or support or 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 your your top top three list of lawyers who are uh, BIPOC lawyers, Asian lawyers who want to get into public law. What what's your top three uh, uh, words of advice? Don't be afraid to do public law. I have so many young people who come to me and they say. Well, how is it possible I could ever get into charter litigation or environmental litigation or Aboriginal rights and Indigenous rights law? Don't be afraid. If that's what you want to do, go look for that work because that work is very important. It's there. Um, it's going to be a different practice than what you ever imagined. It's not going to feel like your, your, your daily cookie cutter practice. It's going to be full of policy. There's lots of heavy mental lifting because you're creating law all the time. And you're not just dealing with litigation. It's not just a case. It's like a movement. So there's the political aspects mm. of it. There's the campaign aspects of it. But don't be afraid of that. I think that for social justice law, that is our, that is our norm now, our new norm. 
and embrace it. And there are firms that will let you do this. I, I'm noticing the time and so we're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, but before I do, I've got, uh, again, the most important question that I ask for all the litigators on this podcast. You, you're laughing because you, you probably know what the, what, what's uh, coming. I listened to Kevin's podcast, so I heard it. So you got to cast your vote. Uh, pan fried dumplings, the the wateep, or or the sulambao, the the steamed dumplings. What's what's your pick? You know, I was going to say chilwin. I think it's such an unfair question because so much of it depends <laughs> on who makes it, right? What time of year it is, and the quality of the cho, the vinegar that you mm. get, depending on where you are. Okay. But I think, you know, I, I, I have to say for me, it's a Xiaolong Bao. Okay. You know, that for yeah. me, it's that juicy, you know, moment of bursting the, the soup that makes it for me. But I love them both. I really do. So. How do you stop the, the soup from splattering all over your shirt when you bite into it? Okay. Are you a sucker I, or are you a, a gulper? You know, like, like I, are you the I, one that sucked yeah. the soup out or do you gulp the whole thing at the same time? I am a gulper and the key is you have to wait till it's cool enough so you're not going to burn your tongue, but you want it just the right size. So again, this is about where you eat it, right? You want it just the right size so you can pop it in, stick your tongue in it, have the soup ooze out slowly before you bite down on the meat, okay? Ah. And okay. then you go in for the cho, the vinegar, and you scoop a little bit of vinegar and you pop it in your mouth. That's the way to eat it. That's a good way to do it. I'm going to have to try that next time. Um, uh, Lisa Fong, Queen's Council, thank you very much for joining me on this podcast for the uh, the Faculty BC and our series on, on Asian litigators. Um, it's an honor to have you as a friend, uh, having worked with you as a colleague, we can't wait to see what you're going to achieve with your practice and your firm in the future. Um, and we hope to have you back on the Faculty Podcast one day soon, probably when you're a judge. <laughs> Chilwin, thank you for doing this. This is actually really important work. And I'm so proud to know you and always honored to work with you or even against you. <laughs> always a wonderful experience. Thank you, Lisa. All right, Lisa Fawn, Queen's Council, uh, and we'll see you all the next podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Faculty BC podcast. Visit our website at facultybc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Faculty BC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facultybc.ca.